You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM, community radio in New Haven, Connecticut. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. Chef, activist, and author Bryant Terry has been on a mission to transform what he refers to as our messed up food system. His cookbooks inspire with delicious plant-based recipes rooted in black culinary traditions. Through dynamic public events, he supports learning and community building to start to address some of the root causes of food issues, such as poverty and corporate greed. Bryant's fifth cookbook, Vegetable Kingdom, is stunning and expands on his work to highlight foods of the black diaspora. This book also includes some of the Asian foodways of his wife and children's heritage. I caught up with Bryant on the first leg of his book tour and recorded this conversation in partnership with the Yale Sustainable Food Program and the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale. This first audio clip was recorded live at his book party, so please forgive the sound quality of the first minute of the show, but I really wanted you to hear Bryant in action and how he frames these issues to an audience. The full studio interview follows. Me, whatever the work that I've been doing over the past two decades, whether it's grassroots activism, working with young people, or writing books, or the curation that I do with the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, the cornerstone of all that work for me is bringing people together and building community. And I truly feel, as I stated earlier when I was presenting, that that's one of the most powerful ways for us to build a broad movement around kind of fixing our broken food system. But even when I say broken food system, I feel like that's, I don't know if that's the right way to frame it. Because I think the food system is actually working in the way in which the handful of multinational corporations that largely control our food system want it to be running, right? So let's just say our food system is messed up. And so our food system has been messed up from the beginning. And I think in order for us to have a conversation, an honest conversation, about how we reclaim our food system for the people, how we reel in this runaway food system and ensure that it's working for everyday eaters, people like you and me, and not just the wealthy multinational corporations that largely control it, we need to start from this place by recognizing that our food system is built on stolen land. And I should have done this earlier, so I'm gonna do it now. Um, I just wanna recognize the native people on whose land we're sitting, standing, on which this city is built. Um, this land was stolen, genocide took place, native peoples were, you know, we know, I don't even need to go through it, right? But that's the foundation of our food system. And further, if we're gonna have honest conversations about fixing our broken food system, we need to recognize that Africans were enslaved and brought to this country because they were prized for their agricultural knowledge and the free labor that they provided for hundreds of years is the basis for modern capitalism. So we just have to start there. Are y'all cool with that? Is everybody in agreement that that's the reality that we're working with? Hi, Bryant. Hey, Tegan, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? Doing really well. Thanks for making time in your busy schedule. For people who don't know you and your story, can you tell folks how did you get into eating a plant-based diet? How did you become vegan? Well, it's interesting because you said, how did I get into a plant-based diet? 
And then you asked, how did I become vegan? And I feel like those are two separate questions. And I don't know if it was necessarily a plant-based diet, but I like to think that the diet I, I grew up eating was um, largely vegetable-based, or we could say vegetable-forward. Mm. And it's because I spent... Um, well, it's because that was just something that our family valued. Um, I come from a family of farmers, and my grandparents... Um, migrated from the rural south to Memphis where I grew up and they brought with them those traditions of growing food and their agrarian knowledge and you know just the understanding that it's important that you be in charge of producing the food for yourself and your family and so you know that was something that my grandparents passed down to most of their kids and they had gardens and I spent a lot of time in my um, paternal grandfather's garden when I was growing up. And I call it a garden, but it, it's more like an urban farm mm. because he literally used every bit of available space to grow food. And he had chickens, he had hogs. And this is a neighborhood adjacent to downtown Memphis where, mm, nice. you know, it was very productive. And I um, that's what we ate from. You know, I always say that the food that we ate was local as our backyard garden. It was always in season and we literally would go harvest food right before making it during many of our meals. But in terms of me moving more towards a compassionate and um, healthful diet in, in the way that we think about them, kind of like labeling it as a vegan diet, that happened when I was in high school after I heard that um, the song Beef by Boogie Down Productions mm -hmm. and Karis One, the MC of that group. And it was really just this wake-up call for me. And I just had no idea about the violent way that our industrialized food system can treat animals and the impact that that can then have, you know, obviously on the animals, but also on human health and the environment. And um, I just couldn't turn back. So after hearing that song, I really moved towards um, more of a plant-based diet. And, you know, I think it's important for me to always recognize that it wasn't a linear journey. It wasn't like I heard that and I just stopped eating meat and right. I've never gone back, you know, um, there were moments where I've eaten animal products again. I mean, you know, case in point, I was a strict vegan and then I went to study abroad in France as an undergrad. And in the mid nineties, it was hard to be a vegan in France. And so I was <laughs> staying with the, everything. yeah, I was staying with the host family and right. they were feeding me what they ate. And so I, I feel like it's important to note that because a lot of people have these purity tests and I certainly would fail any of those purity tests. And I also think it's important for me to be transparent so that other people can just feel human right. and know that you don't have to be perfect and know that, you know, you do the best you can. And sometimes you might do something differently. And it's all about just waking up the next day and trying your best that day. Right. Yeah, I totally feel you on that. Um, I know that history really informs your work a lot, in particular, the history of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about how both that history and other history really informs the way that you work in food. Yeah. Well, I always talk about the Black Panther Party for self-defense being one of the major or learning about the work that they were doing in the 60s and the 70s um, was really the major impetus for me deciding to do this work. And particularly their survival programs that were aimed at meeting the basic needs of people living in communities. And they had a range of programs from, you know, free clinics to ambulance service to sickle cell anemia testing. Um, the programs that 
address this intersection of poverty, malnutrition, and institutional racism, their grocery giveaways, and their free breakfast for children program were the ones that inspired me to start doing um, food systems work and to become a quote-unquote food justice activist. Um, But I think more than the programs, especially after having conversations with many former Black Panthers, it's really the spirit of seeing a need in a community and then just jumping into action, you know, and I really understood that we had to train a generation of young people who were equipped to make change in their communities around food systems and and lead the change, in fact. And I always talk about how you think about many of the most powerful social movements in the 20th century, and it was young people, their energy, their brilliance, um, their fearlessness that helped these movements uh, push forward. You know, we can look at the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, the civil rights movement in the American South, And, you know, if we imagine that food justice will be one of the most hopeful movements of the 21st century, I feel like we need to make sure that we're equipping young people to be the ones who are taking the lead in the movement. What was it about food that made you really feel like that was the need that you wanted to take action on? Well, it was me seeing these parallels with where things were in the 60s and the Panthers addressing, you know, I think nutritional um, apartheid and understanding that hunger and poverty were issues that had to be addressed. And they started the breakfast, well, I mean, they had the grocery giveaways because people were hungry. People didn't know where their next meal was gonna come from. And they started the free breakfast for children program because children were going to school hungry and they knew that they couldn't focus on what they were learning if they were having hunger pangs. And they didn't need any peer reviewed studies that um, proved the connection between like nutrition and educational and behavioral outcomes it's just like intuitive people need to i mean like if i don't eat i feel grumpy and can't think straight and so imagine being a child having to go to school without being fed and so when i i i tell this story about being on the subway um going from brooklyn to manhattan to go to campus and you know i was teeing a class and seeing these young people on the subway at seven o'clock in the morning eating candy bars and red hot Cheetos and drinking sodas and sugary juices and energy drinks and just realizing that these young people like that's the worst way to start their day and I know that that was just it just wasn't normal. just that day right. you know yeah. this is this is probably the way that they're eating often and so I jumped into action and I started an organization called Be Healthy that used cooking as a way to empower them and give them skills that they could take into their adult lives and help them feel more equipped to make real food, but also as a way to help them be more politicized about the food issues that directly impact them and their families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of like how you have approached your work, is there a kind of spiritual component or spirit component that has motivated you in the way that you're working? That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, one of the spiritual components that I think underpins so much of the work I do is this idea of interconnection that Buddhist Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh has around interconnection and this idea. And, and it's it's in that particular religious philosophy and there are other spiritual religious traditions that talk about oneness and how there is no separation and we're all connected. You know, all living beings are connected. And when I'm looking at a tree i'm looking at a reflection of myself i'm looking at another human being i'm obviously looking at a reflection of myself i'm looking at an animal Mm -hmm. i'm looking at a reflection of myself and that oneness it it helps me understand that 
every decision we make has an impact on other living beings. And so, you know, I can't think that my reckless behavior um, in whatever way isn't going to somehow spill out on the environment or other human beings or, you know, any living being. And so I, I really want us to all think about, you know, the decisions we make and how they're not just about us, but they're about all these other beings that are living among us. Yeah. I love that because when I think about, um, when I think about food justice work and sort of people get this like very focused thing about like, what are people eating? What are people cooking? What are people buying? And thinking about actually, just like you said about the Panther party, like the actual solution to these things is not just about like your individual purchasing choices it's about the in, it's about like ending poverty right yeah. it's about it's about ending welfare to corporations so that the food that we need to eat to live is affordable not the food that's killing us is yes. what's cheap right and so like i think i wasn't expecting you quite to give that answer but it's so parallel to kind of how this social change needs to happen because it is about the interconnectedness of all these things you know intersectionality we often say now that um is where the solution comes from and not just looking at like, oh, you're going to do food and this mm-hmm. other person's going to do housing and this other person's going to work on the environment. Yes. Um, and yeah. I always say that if the food justice movement is to be successful, it has to have an intersectional analysis yeah. and it has to look at the way in which all these systems are operating together. And that's why I look towards groups like Movement Generation in the Bay Area and the Movement for Black Lives and how they certainly understand that food apartheid is something that need to be addressed and they're talking about climate change and they're talking about um you know the 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 various ways in which communities are materially deprived and oppressed Mm -hmm. and you know i want to just make a call to all food activists let's think about food but let's ensure that we're keeping our eye on the range of issues that historically marginalized communities are um, facing. You know, I always say you never go to a community that, you know, doesn't have access to healthy, fresh, affordable food. And they have great public schools and lots of jobs that pay living wages and, you know, right. everything else, green is, space yeah. where you can run around and enjoy the beauty. You know, usually it's the opposite of that. And so we need to make sure that we're attending to all these issues. Mm-hmm. You know, while we're talking about that, can you, can you talk about how what um, collective action looks like? Like we, you know, we we know a lot about like the individual choices people can make, but I've heard you speak about how you see some of the solution as sort of non-capitalist versions or or kind of collective ways that people can have solutions to food issues. What can you explain how you see that? Yeah, I think there's some organizations and just collectives and folks just coming together and creating parallel institutions outside of capitalism Mm -hmm. that are, you know, addressing a range of issues. And I think we need to get over this idea that somehow, you know, capitalism is it. There is nothing beyond that. You know, some people, they can imagine some apocalyptic end to the world before they can imagine an end to capitalism. And so I do think that it's important for communities to engage in the process of thinking about the way in which life could look if we are creating our own systems, our own food systems, our own, you know, systems of bartering and trading and, you know, just a range of things. Um, But, you know, I think that's a long-term vision for a lot of folks. And I think it's a process, you know, it's one of those processes where you're going to be making mistakes. You're not going to get things perfectly. You're going to have to figure out how to get resources. And, you know, it's just going to, um, 
be a lot of trial and error. And I think, you know, that's what the, that's where the work is. The work is in being in community and figuring out solutions to these problems together. And, you know, while we're doing that, and for some communities before they can even get to that point, I always talk about the small steps that people can take. I do think it's important to understand the role that we have as consumers and how we can make you know different changes to the food system through consumer action. You know, it makes a difference if you go to the farmers market or if you join a CSA program mm -hmm. and join a farm where you're you know, spending your do dollars directly with that farm. Right. It makes a difference when you're supporting independent um, artisans and artists, but you know, that's not enough. And so I always say that while we're doing that, what are ways that we can support those groups who are already creating parallel institutions that are already on the ground, you know, working towards more thriving food systems or addressing a range of issues. And, you know, do I expect everyone to drop what they're doing and quit their jobs and become full-time food justice activists? No, I know that's not like, a, uh, right. you know, I don't think that's a reality for most people, but you know, this whole idea of tithing, tithing your treasure, your time and your talent, there are ways that you can give back. You know, if you have disposable income, support organizations who need it. You know, there are a lot of people who are doing this amazing and brilliant work on the ground and important work, and then they're doing it for free. You know, people out here like changing the world and their own welfare. Right. So let's support these these bootstrapped organizations. Let's um, volunteer time. You know, there are lots of things like urban farms and community gardens and, you know, just sources. Right, small ways that people can get involved in these things. Yeah. yeah. You know, you mentioned something about people cooking together. I wanted you to share that idea of like people getting together and cook meals together because I think that's like another way that doesn't involve necessarily like plugging into a nonprofit organization, but something that people can do collectively. Yeah. Well, I always talk about how, because what I, what I find is when I'm talking about these issues, some of the things that people immediately um, bring up as barriers for them, you know, eating healthfully or making food at home from scratch instead of buying out is that it's too expensive. It takes too much time. You know, there's, real concerns that people have. And I'm right. certainly not invalidating those concerns. And I'm also, I want people to shift their gaze towards solutions. And I think a solution to, you know, not having enough time might be you joining with a group of people to make a number of dishes collectively that you could then share among each other instead of like you just at home all day making like a meal's, you know, <laughs> trying to cook dinner every know, night, trying just, to cook yeah. <laughs> the whole week's meals right. by yourself. You right. know, that's a lot of work or yeah. for people who feel like it's too expensive, you know, pooling money and going to the farmer's market or going to like food co-ops and buying things in bulk that you can then kind of divvy among the group. And so I, I, I think at the bottom, I think the most important thing is how do we be in community? How do we do this collectively and not kind of fall into this capitalist trap where everything has to be about, you know, solving it individually or just for your own family but how do we like think about the wider community you know i often think about just um i do a lot of work around postpartum justice and and addressing this issue of mater maternal mortality among african-american women and native women and you know when we the the group that i work with mothers to mothers when we looked at some of the successful models you know one of the most important thing um that is present in helping women 
feel supported and have healthy pregnancies and then like, you know, be healthy in the fourth trimester and beyond is community involvement. Right. And it's not just your family member, but it's the whole community coming together and ensuring that that mother and that child are fed and held and healthy and taken care of. And I think a similar approach to healing our food system, you know, healing our communities, we have to do it together. We have to come out of our houses. We have to meet with each other. We have to struggle together and we have to celebrate together. You're listening to 103.5 FM Community Radio in New Haven, Connecticut. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're talking today to author, chef, and activist Bryant Terry. You've written five books now, um, and I'm curious, you know, four of them are cookbooks, and in line with what you're talking about now, what are some of the things that you do to try to help your recipes be accessible to people? Especially, you're talking about reaching out to communities that are typically marginalized um, or where eating plant-based or vegan diets is maybe not the normal thing that people are used to doing. What are what do you do to try to help people feel like this is their food? Yeah. I mean, I use a lot of basic staples that I think most people would have access to. Um, you know, you think about a dish like Texas caviar, which is this kind of play on um, you know, the, the, the caviar, the black eyed peas is something that you see in a lot of Southern places. And it's kind of like a, imagine a pico de gallo, but with, um, Mm -hmm. cooked black eyed peas that have been, um, cooled. And so, you know, getting black eyed peas in bulk and then the other ingredients would be like red onion, some cilantro, maybe a little bit of fresh tomatoes and then just a vinaigrette. That's not that expensive. Like those ingredients are really cheap. And I think, you know, I feel like a lot of people, I think many people are very earnest when they talk about food being like eating healthfully being too expensive. I think it's, they can't imagine, you know, being able to eat healthfully and do it within their budget. But I also have seen that it's just like kind of like this bad faith knee jerk reaction that I think some people just say as a way to just kind of like thumb their nose at people who are encouraging folks to eat more healthfully or eat more of a plant based diet. And you can eat well for cheaply, but I think you have to be strategic about it, you know. Um, And I think we need to understand that the, the, the food that's often presented to us is cheap, like fast food or processed food it's artificially cheap you know it goes back to what you're saying around the way in which these are typically companies that are getting subsidies from the government to make cheap food and so yeah in the the short term it may be cheap and it's artificially cheap but i want to encourage people to think about the long term you know it's expensive to have a decline in your health well before you should it's Mm -hmm. expensive to have the type of um, unsustainable farming practices that many of these companies have that are ruining our environment. It's expensive to, you know, have the heartbreak and the sadness of seeing the people you love getting sick and dying because they've been eating a lot of this process and, and crappy food. So I'm not in any way, and there's nothing in me that blames people who might eat right. that way because I understand the complicated um, economic and geographic and physical Emotional barriers and is, yeah. that people have 
to eating um, healthfully, but I want to lead people on a journey. I think my cookbooks are a great way to show that. And I hear from people all over the country, you know, people respond to me. Oh, my God. Like, you know, these basic staples that I grew up eating. I never imagined that I can eat them in this way that actually tastes really fresh and healthful. And there's some recipes in there that you know, may not be accessible for people who are living on like a fixed income. And I think it's always this balance for me about creating recipes that I feel, you know, are true to who I am and true to like my vision as an artist, but also keeping one eye on the communities that I want to have an impact on. And so, you know, I'm still figuring it out, you know, just what that balance is. But there are enough recipes in all of my books (laughs) that, you know, folks who might be dealing with, um, you know, just economic marginalization, they can make good food for themselves and their families. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I relate to all those things you're saying as I have been doing a lot of cooking with people in community and training community members to become cooking teachers and, and looking at like, what are your cultural foods and how can we look at like cooking them on a budget, cooking them when you don't maybe have an oven or, you know, limited equipment, um, and also how to tweak things to make them healthy. So, like, I know you you're, you talk about getting back to, like, everyday food versus, like, soul food that's, like, festival party food versus, like, soul food that's everyday food. And mm-hmm. so how to how to support people in doing that. I've seen that, like, across all different communities. And, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't even like the term soul food because I just feel like when people think about soul food, you know, a lot of people immediately think about, like, the kind of big flavored meats and the fatty side dishes and the sugary desserts that you find at restaurants. And I just talk about, like, traditional black food because these are the type of foods that you see in so many gardens and pantries and home kitchens of all the the grandmas and the papas and, you know, the elders who had more of immediate connection with, like, the agrarian south or might have migrated to the north and just like have those memories and you know it wasn't a big deal like that's the thing when I think about my grandparents and the way that they grew food and and consumed it you know they didn't talk about it being local and seasonal and sustainable and vegetable for this was just the way that they survived it was cheap for them to grow all their food and it was healthy because they were eating food fresh from the garden and so um, we get into this trap of thinking somehow as we progress technologically and you know modernized that somehow you know things are getting better but we've seen you know in so many areas um that sometimes that just has the opposite effect that we think it will have yeah Mm. word so speaking of your family you wrote your most recent book vegetable kingdom for your daughters mila and zenzi and what what was the impetus behind that? What were you trying to achieve with writing this book for them? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I intentionally took off a lot of time after Afro Vegan, which was published in 2014, so that I could spend time with my family. You know, we had two young children, and because writing a book often puts me, you know, back in my work shed, away from the family, not really participating in a lot of weekends and holidays because I'm writing and testing recipes and ideating and all that. I just knew I didn't want to be in that zone in, in the earliest years of their life. And because we had created such a bond and spent so much time, it just was kind of organic that the book emerged to be something that was dedicated to them and really, you know, inspired by the type of foods that I was trying to feed them and help them to, you know, continue to fall in love with the diversity of the plants in the vegetable kingdom and so um you know it's not a kid's book 
But I always say the litmus test for the success of most of the recipes in the book was if my kids liked it. And, you know, there were times when they they let me know they weren't <laughs> feeling it. They look at me in dead eyes and spit it out. But, <laughs> you know, that was that was, uh, was humbling and it was perfect. And so, you know, the book is the celebration of vegetables. And if you know, my kids, like most of them, I'm sure most adults and other kids will like them as well. So this book kind of takes off beyond you have the black diaspora of food and then also in your family you have the Asian diaspora of food. And so this book sort of goes into both of those food ways. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like, first of all, was that um, since your work has been so rooted in black and African diaspora food, did you feel nervous about kind of branching out beyond that? I didn't really feel nervous about it. Um, I think I definitely had a little bit of, I won't even say anxiety, but I knew that there would be some people who would have something to say about the fact that, you know, I'm someone who's black and I'm like constantly talking about, you know, supporting and celebrating and uplifting the black diaspora. And I'm married to a non-black woman. And, you know, most people don't care, but I've definitely heard some people, you know, mention that, like, you know, what's going on? Like you talking all this stuff about black folks and black food and you're married to an Asian woman. And, you know, to that, I say, look, I love who I love and I don't care what you say about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But, um, you know, the thing is, all the books that I've written have this texture of autobiography. And so it only made sense to me. It was just like it wasn't any contrivance. It's just like this is the way we eat at home. You know, we do take it very seriously. Um, this approach of kind of sharing memories and teaching history through food uh, to our children. And so, you know, we play with the spectrum of flavors throughout the um, African and Asian diasporas. Um, sometimes in the same meal, you know, we intentionally will do like we're having ramen and instead of like bok choy or yao choy, we're going to put collard greens in it. And we might like use a little mustard green, um, you know, harissa or something in our uh, pho. So we're, we're always experimenting with them just kind of naturally because we want our kids to know themselves through their food. And do you, do you talk to them about that? Like, do you explicitly tell them or is it just kind of that they're learning from just experiencing a little it? bit of both? I mean, sometimes we're just eating because you know right. how it is as yeah. a parent. You just try <laughs> to get the food on the table, like, get in there, eat, take that bath. You did go to bed. But when we have more leisurely meals, yeah, we're talking about all that stuff, you yeah. know, and I, I can't help it. You know, if I'm talking about we're eating okra then I'll tell them about okra being indigenous to, you know, Western Central Africa and how it's traveled all over the globe. And if you go to um, the South or if you go to Brazil or if you go to wherever black folks have traveled, you're probably going to find some okra. And so they definitely understand, you know, food ways and and food history and the way it's traveled um, because we're just constantly talking about it. Yeah. I'm curious if you have uh, any... um spirit food tradition around like in my in my home we offer when we when we cook like a nice meal we offer some food to our ancestors yeah and that's part of both asian tradition and african tradition is do you do anything like that or any other sort of um, spirit ritual or action around eating in your family that's a good good question actually um 
there was a point where for a long time, just me as an individual, not even this is pre-family, where anytime I ate, I would have a little ancestor plate and I would take food and I would put some aside for the ancestors whenever I ate. Yeah. But um, we don't necessarily do that with our meals. But now that you're saying that, I'm like, we should start doing that again. <laughs> I'm going to bring that back and we're going to implement that in our family. Mm. But we certainly have rituals around, you know, building altars and then offering the... Um, the altars, um, which are ancestor altars, you know, some food or drinks and just really um, ensuring that we're giving that energy. But I'm bringing it back. We're about to start having the ancestors play to every yeah. meal. <laughs> yeah, we do. We put it to our head, which like in Yoruba traditions, your ori mm. is there. So it's like the spirit of, of your individual self and then our heart just as like heart connected. And then we just like pass a little bowl around and put it on the ancestor altar so come on it yeah so it's, it's so good and it's true i mean we do it most times we eat but when we're like eating leftovers and you know, <laughs> some quick thing, don't always do it then yeah um yeah i love i love that you're teaching your kids about their heritage through food and through food like in everyday life like that's just that's really important and beautiful mm-hmm. um and it's so cool too because um you know they crave those foods like is interesting whenever we travel and say we're going somewhere in Latin America and they're just eating like, you know, those foods. When they get back, they're like, I want my noodles. I want my like collard greens. Like <laughs> they really are connected to their cultural foods. And um, I love that. And I feel like, you know, we're just building that foundation. As you know, as a parent, you do the best to like feature children build that foundation and then one day they may go astray they may have a period where they're like i don't want to eat any of that but i know it's going to be something that they're going to come back to and so we do what we can as, as parents to um teach them to know themselves and love themselves and build that foundation that'll always be there yeah it's beautiful you know one of the things that i was thinking about when i was looking at this book which is so beautiful like i've you know i've been following your books but like it's amazing to watch the evolution of like the depth and the i mean there's so much depth in all your books but just the the beauty that's possible when you get to this stage of your career when a publishing company will like pay for more photos and Mm -hmm. like more support it's it's stunning thank you um one of the things i was thinking about because like there was there were things in here that I had not heard of and I, you know, love food and think about food pretty much nonstop. And so I was curious about, um, first of all, how you go about exploring the, the complexity of the black diaspora of food and not getting in a place of kind of tokenizing it in, in creating recipes and creating a book. Mm-hmm. Um, great Cause question. it's like so vast. You yeah. Know? It's, it's vast. I mean, you know, a lot of it is research. A lot of it is just kind of serendipitous. Like, um, for example, there is this um, recipe in the book, which is um, roasted zucchini with this collard peanut pesto. And it's a dish from uh, the Central African country, Chad. And I, I discovered this dish. It was just like, oh, they do this kind of like um, roasted zucchini. And it was during the summer and we happened to have like a lot of zucchini and other summer squashes growing in our garden. And I thought about ways in which I can like kind of add some oomph to the dish. And I thought, oh, what if we actually made like a pesto using the collard greens? And it's Mm -hmm. something I've done before. And so I made this um, collard peanut pesto and, you know, a typical like 
Italian. And I don't even want to, I don't know if it's a pesto, if it's not pine nuts and right. basil and olive oil, but you know, it's an analog. And so I yes. think people can understand yeah. it. So I call it pesto. But, um, you know, typically you might use like olive oil, pine nuts, and then um, basil for a pesto. And then this one, we use collard greens that have been blanched. And that kind of takes some of the bitter edge off and, you know, softens them up a bit. We use peanuts and we use peanut oil. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, oh, and then in lieu of what, you know, one might typically use in a um, traditional pesto, which is like Parmesan cheese, we use some um, white miso. Yes, I love miso and pesto. Yeah, and so you know, good. it gives it that depth, gives mm-hmm. it that creaminess, kind of like leans towards too, that, yeah. yeah, that kind of umami that right. you get with the hard cheeses. And so, um, yeah, I put that together and then we ate it and everybody loved it. And so for me, it was this way of drawing on this traditional dish in an African country that is, you know, if you want to call it vegetarian, there there aren't any meat um, or animal products included in it. And that's part of my project of showing that there are these traditions throughout the African diaspora in Western Central Africa, in the Caribbean, in the American South, where, you know, meat wasn't in every single dish. I think people have these perceptions of like, oh, you know, like somehow you know, having things devoid of, of meat doesn't have anything to do with black people. And I'm like, no, like so many of these diets are like largely vegetable based. But then, you know, in my mind, it's also kind of creating this, um, you know, connection. Like, you know, I, I see this type of recipe creation as this anti-colonial act, because if you think about like the dispersion of black people throughout the globe, because the forced dispersion, because of, you know, Europeans wanting to enslave them, then it's like, my way of helping piece back some of these histories and you know peoples that have been dispersed so you got like the collard greens which are a staple in the american south as well as peanuts and um i feel like it's just like everybody kind of mingling together on the plate and in your mouth and your stomach and (laughs) it's just like a little spiritual party yeah i I love (laughs) witnessing your creativity throughout the book and that just like you just explained when you say you you like discovered this recipe that was my other curiosity is like where where what are some of the ways that you are discovering or learning about um new foods and new ways of cooking in the in the black diaspora yeah so i've traveled to many places in the black diaspora but i've yet to travel to the african continent but i'm excited about going there in the fall i'm going to be going to um, nairobi and mombasa and probably some other parts of kenya and you know outside of my own travels a lot of my um Inspiration comes from the home kitchens of friends who come from different parts of the um, African diaspora. Like my first introduction to African food was eating Ethiopian food when I was a child. And I have some childhood friends in Memphis who are from Ethiopia. And then they would invite me over and I had injera and I had all these traditional dishes. And, you know, I would watch my friend's mother cook. And so that was a way for me to start learning about these traditions and you know, living in New York, I would go to the friends of, you know, families from Haiti or folks from like, um, you know, Jamaica or wherever. And so a lot of it's been connecting with families and mm-hmm. connecting with elders who show me different ways that they make food. But then some of it's research, you know, I'm combing through archives, I'm looking at different cookbooks, I'm looking at websites, and I'm learning more about these different food traditions and just thinking about how can I um, kind of like embrace them and make them my own. And um 
you know, it's been a great process. And I'm super excited about spending more time in the coming years um, on the African continent and bringing my family along as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, yeah, when I went to Nigeria um, like 20 years ago, my husband got initiated as a babalao in Oyo, Nigeria. I spent the whole time in the kitchen. Like when I was not in ritual with him, I was mm. in the kitchen. <laughs> mm. And the kitchen was actually like a tiny closet. So we also cooked like on the little platform outside the kitchen. Mm. But yeah, that I mean, that is like the best learning in the world. Just like how do people cut things? What tools are they using? What spices? And seeing even just like the effects of colonialism on like you know, they were making these little cookies out of like um, nutmeg and flour. And I was like, oh, yeah, the Dutch were here with their nutmeg, you know, mm-hmm. like all these different um, different things. And then just watching like how people made pounded yam and just some things that were made like traditionally where people were still boiling yams and pounding it. And mm-hmm. then other things where people had like powdered eon flour and were right. like doing it in a pot and like yeah. but all of it. Right. Like it's all tradition. and It's all culture. And yeah. that is like my greatest joy in the world is just being in the kitchen and watching just watching and learning and helping if they let me (laughs) definitely (laughs) and you know what's um really interesting to me is seeing how like the same ingredients that we might use in the american context will taste so different in different parts of the world and you know like when i'm traveled to the caribbean and going to farms or going in the kitchens and seeing things that you know i don't know like cilantro for example like a fresh herb and just experiencing how different it tastes um, because of the soil, the conditions, the sunlight, mm. you know, or, or whatever, you know, it's like because of our depleted soil oh, and, yeah. you know, the environmental pollution and all that. So, um, yeah, traveling. I mean, when we take our children traveling or even just, you know, my, when, when my wife and I travel, we are very intentional about doing something that connects with local people. Even right. if we're on like vacation, just chilling. Like yeah, when we too. went to Kauai for our honeymoon, we spent a whole day on a taro farm and we learned about like the different, um, the history of taro and the different uses. And we got a chance to go out and harvest them and mm-hmm. we made some dishes with that. And, you know, we certainly try to incorporate that when we're traveling with our children as well, just so you know that, you know, it's great being in another country, but being on some resort is not the the be all to end all. And there are people who live here and they have lives and, you know, we want to try to connect and build relationships with people. Yeah. Yeah. I do that, too. Absolutely. It's so important when we travel. So one of the roles that you hold right now is as the chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And you're doing some amazing stuff there. Can you tell us a little, like, what what's some of the programming you're doing and what, what is the objective of that work for you? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say that, you know, one of the the main things that I think if there was a thread throughout all my work, it's about building community, whether it's working with young people or writing books, or the curation I do at the museum. I really want to bring people together. And I'm very intentional about creating spaces that are open to all people, multi-generational. Um, you know, I mean, I'm actually planning a, a an event for the fall that's specifically geared towards young people. And, you know, the, the work that I do at the museum, I, I feel like is some of the most important work that I'm doing. And one of the reasons is because it's been so inspiring for other people around the country or other institutions, I should say. And we probably get like a dozen emails every month with institutions who've heard about the work and are interested in learning more. You know, not necessarily, uh, I mean, there have been some who are interested in kind of creating a full on like 
chef residency, something similar where there's a position and there's someone who's creating programming just around health, food and farming issues. But I think more important, there are a lot of people who are just like, how can we include more food programming into our current work? You know, institutions that aren't necessarily dealing with food, food and health and agriculture. And so that's super exciting. But, you know, the, the work has ranged from, you know, intimate conversations with authors to panel discussions with, you know, scholars and journalists and activists and authors to dinners. We've actually had dinners inside the museum. Like we convert the lobby of the museum into a dining room. Um, we most recently partner with the Hotel St. Regis next door and, you know, use one of their big spaces where you can have a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I mean, we were just doing some cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a little about the ways that you've been trying to uplift women in the work you're doing and why that's important to you? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very clear about the way in which, um, you know, women aren't supported within the food industry. There's the, the, the you know, gender wage gap, um, kitchens. If we talk about, like, restaurant kitchens, you know, kitchens are gendered spaces. You know, in the professional world, they're very male, um, often hyper-masculine, sometimes violent spaces. And, you know, we have traditionally kind of framed the home as, you know, the kitchen is a woman's space. And so um, I've been very intentional about using my position and, and platform and privilege to uplift women. And it's been great having this um, position at the museum so that I can do things like, you know, our first program, like the first event that I did was the Black Women Food and power, and this was a panel that I put together of some scholars and activists and a farmer, and we talked about the historical and contemporary role of black women in the production, the distribution, and the consumption of food and of food knowledge, because there are a lot of um, black scholars there and out in the world that we wanted to uplift their work. Um, you know, I, I, I did a program in 2019, Black Women, Food, and Publishing, and this was really about celebrating the brilliant book projects that are uh, coming out by black women. And so we had one woman who self-published a book, and we had another one who has like a mid-sized publisher, and we had someone else who's working with a major publisher, and just really trying to demystify this process of, you know, being a published author. And there was just a room full of um a diverse group of people, but mostly women and uh, mostly black women and a lot of women who are interested in being a published author. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I want to do all I can to create that space and uplift the work of black women and um, ensure that, you know, folks just have opportunities in the yeah. same way that I had and the same kind of mentorship I had. Um, I'll do the little bit that I can. Yeah. So on that note, I want to give you a chance before we finish just to shout out some other folks so um, people who you're finding really, who you find inspiring that you would like people to go check out. Yeah. Um, I like people to check out Leah Penniman, the farmer, the activist, the author, uh, Ashanti Reese, the uh, scholar and professor. Uh, I want people to check out, check out Gail Myers, the farmer who started the Freedom's Farmers Market in the Bay Area and has been doing all this brilliant scholarship and activism and work to support black farmers for decades. I want to shout out um, Solange and her brilliant last album. Um, what was the name of that? I can't think of it. The one with Stay Flow. That's my favorite song on there. Um, I want to shout out, uh, and you know, just I want to shout out like the unnamed, um, invisibilized 
black women and women of color who've been working in the food system, in the fields, in the kitchens, in the the big houses, you know, just throughout history, there've been so much labor that black women and other women of color have put into feeding people. And I want to make sure that um, we always remember them and celebrate them as well as the, you know, big names and the, the people who have a platform. Like, let us not forget those who don't. Yes. Ashe, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. To find out more about Bryant Terry and his new cookbook, Vegetable Kingdom, including a link to his Spotify playlist from the book, go to thetableunderground.com. The show you just heard is the first episode of season four of The Table Underground, and we are blessed to start off with such a brilliant guest. There's an exciting season lined up, including shows like Passover with the folks from Gefilteria, Prison Food Justice and Abolition Work, Permaculture of the Motherland in Tanzania, also a delicious Filipino pop-up, queer soup night, and lots of other grassroots folks doing inspiring food and justice work. Stay tuned and follow us on social media, on our website, and wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out. Many thanks to Erwin Lee and the Yale Sustainable Food Program for their partnership in making this show possible. Special thanks go out to DJ Kavim, one of Bryant's collaborators for the use of his eco-hip-hop songs in the show. We'll go out on his song, Sprout That Life. I'm Tegan Engel, and this is The Table Underground. Your mom touch is so fresh, fit so fresh, garden so clean, grown with the best, rose in my hood, throwing up the X, dirt stay wet, flex, 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 got a pocket full of seeds, what's next? Farmers markets always going ahead of fresh, looking, looking the way that they eat, looking the way that they eat, you ain't finish your play, why are you falling asleep? Never too late, be who you needed to be. Yeah, yeah, Meet yeah, me yeah. out in the wood, ready to plant another tree. Homie, I'm good. You're listening to 103.5 FMLP Community Radio in New Haven, Connecticut. 